0: All right. There are a lot of YouTube videos saying that the barefoot industry is lying to you. And there are a lot of people who've been saying that if you go barefoot, you're going to get injured. Um, We're going to chat about the reality of that and what you can do about it. If you're interested in being a happier, healthier runner on today's episode of the movement, movement, the podcast for people who want to know the truth about what it takes to have a happy, healthy, strong body starting feet first, because you know, those things are your foundation. And we break down the propaganda, the mythology, sometimes the outright lies you've been told about what it takes to run or walk or hike or do yoga or CrossFit, whatever it is you like to do, and to do that enjoyably and effectively and efficiently. And did I say enjoyably? Trick question, I know I did. Because look, if you're not having fun, you're not going to keep it up. So, you know, make sure you're having fun doing what you're doing. I am Stephen Sashin, CEO, co-founder of Zero Shoes and the host of the Movement Movement podcast. And we call it that because we, including you, are creating a movement about natural movement letting your body do what it's made to do. And the part where you can help is really really easy. There is no cost involved, there's no time involved really. It's simple. If you want to find out more, go to our website www.jointhemovementmovement.com. You'll find all the previous episodes, all the ways you can interact with us on social media and just you know leave a review and a thumbs up and give us a five-star rating. All those things you know how to do to help people find out about what we're up to. In short, if you want to be part of the tribe, just subscribe. So before I introduce our guest um you may notice i'm a not at the zero shoes headquarters with a bunch of shoes behind me b um i'm not wearing a zero shoes t-shirt and c i have a whole bunch of hardware all over me because i had some shoulder surgery on tuesday uh this tube is going to the thing that's running cold water to this and then i got a brace on anyway blah 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 it's all very entertaining so just wanted to let you know why that's going on and what's up but more importantly let us chat um hey rafi do me a favor tell people who you are and what you're doing here
1: Sure. So my name is Rafi Salazar. I'm an occupational therapist by trade. I own a physical therapy clinic in Augusta, Georgia, home of the Masters, if you're into golf. Um, And we're here to talk about uh, what the research and the evidence shows about transitioning from conventional running uh, to minimalist running and and just a natural uh, gait pattern.
0: Before we do that, um, I didn't know you were in Augusta. When I was doing stand-up comedy for a living, one of my first gigs was in Augusta, Georgia, where on the opening night, they surprised us by saying, hey, Soupy Sales wants to come and do 10 minutes. It was like, what? Um, (laughs) I don't know that anyone even knew who Soupy Sales was then, and I know a lot of people don't now. But that was um, FYI, really nice guy largest head I've ever seen on a human being. Uh, (laughs) Utterly, utterly fascinating, just ginormous noggin. So now before we jump into this, and first of all, thanks. One of the things that I've noticed in the people who are complaining about the whole barefoot world, and by the way, we're not even necessarily going to suggest that you run in bare feet. That's a whole other story. But one thing that I hear people saying all the time is one of two things. One is, hey, the barefoot industry is lying to you, which I find very interesting because the things that these people then say are things that I have never said. In fact, I say the opposite of many of those things they say or, and the guys at Vivo barefoot, same thing, have never said those things. And the two of us are the two largest companies in the world promoting minimalist footwear and natural movement. So that part's really interesting to me. But there's one other part that I, that I, I want to see if we can start with. And that is when people talk about switching to uh, either running barefoot or in minimalist footwear, they talk about injuries and the possibility of getting injured. And they never compare the potential injuries or the actual injury risk in running barefoot or minimalist uh, to the actual injury risk that has been measured for 45 years of people running in regular shoes. I can say more about that, but do you want to jump in on that one?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the reality is uh, running as a sport, in the amateur world anyways, <laughs> probably in the, in the pro world too, uh, has one of the highest injury rates. Uh, in some cases, some studies put it as, as high as like 85% of amateur runners experience some kind of injury over the course of their running career. So basically like eight or nine out of 10 runners experience some kind of running related injury. And it's usually lower extremity foot, plantar fasciitis, hip, knee, back issues, something like that
0: the number that come, gets bandied around quite a bit also is like 50% of runners, 80% of marathoners get injured every year. But my yeah. favorite thing about this, and I'm going to see if we can get it in the show notes. Nike did a study about four years ago. They published it right before COVID, partly. They actually just... They sent out a press release. They never actually published the study, um, but the press release said that they had a new shoe that reduced injury rates by 52%. And on their website now, they actually have the abstract, but they still haven't published the study for a couple of reasons that I just realized, where it says they have their, they compared their best selling running shoe to a new running shoe, and the new running shoe reduced injuries by 52% over a 12 week half marathon training program. And in fact, it did. But then you have to look at the numbers in their best-selling shoe in 12 weeks, uh, over 30% of the people got injured. And in a yeah. new shoe, only 14.5% did. And wh- now... I mean, this is an amazing thing. This is like me saying to you, all right, I'm going to buy you dinner every night this week. Uh, you can pick one of two restaurants, one where you'll get food poisoning, roughly, you know, the odds are about one and seven and the other where the odds are like three and seven. Which one do you want to go to? And of course the answer would be, what are you crazy? So, um, but I think they haven't published the results because they defined an injury as anything that kept people from running for at least three training sessions. Now, I would sus- I suspect that if they actually showed how long people got injured for those numbers were much, much higher. And so, you know, if after 45 years, this is the best they can do is injuring 15 to 40 to 30% of the people in just 12 weeks, injury rates go up, (laughs) then that's a problem. And, you know, that's what we need to compare ourselves to. If anything, I mean, my God, look, if, if at zero shoes, if we were injuring 30% of the people wearing our shoes in 12 weeks so you
1: probably got a business
0: <laughs> I'd probably be in jail so uh you know it's an amazing standard that we're not being held to and or even more interestingly that they're not being held to so anyway that's I just want to kind of f- frame that in this conversation about what it takes from your perspective and and the research for people to and again this is I think this transcends running but anyway to have a transition from whatever they're doing in whatever shoes they're currently wearing to something more natural and arguably better for you.
1: Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's a, from a standpoint of just like on the, on the logic of it, if you get injured, you know, you get plantar fasciitis or or whatever you have weak arches, like the idea of, okay, we just need to put more support or more cushion or whatever makes a lot of sense on the surface like Mm -hmm. oh that's common sense i get injured because of the way my foot is striking the ground so i just put more cushion and i'll be fine because it won't be striking as hard um but what we fail to really understand in that in that logic is what it does one to the entire kinetic chain but then the neuro uh, like the whole neuroscience of it um, and motor control and what it does to have like uh, impaired or inappropriate motor patterns when you're doing something over the long term and what that does for repetitive strain injuries and all of that. So on the surface, you know, cushioned supportive shoes sounds like a great idea because of course we're going to be decreasing the, the impact force. Um, but the, the research except, suggests, yes, different. I was
0: going to say, except, and I'll let you continue. I'll just here. I'll give you a little one-liners just to keep rolling on this. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah I mean, it, you know, it does quote make sense. Um, if you don't think about it too hard, if you don't know anything about physics in particular, and this is the part that blo- and you know when when the big maximally cushion shoes started coming out, I'm a former all-American gymnast, and the first thing I thought, literally immediately was foam is like a trampoline. It's yeah. not, it doesn't give you anything back. It's what you put into it. And like a trampoline, it's tuned to a particular weight and a particular speed. If you're not that weight and that running at that speed, it's just going to get in the way. There's no such thing as energy return. There's just energy loss. And it's just a question of how you mitigate that. But, um, but then the, the I mean, I, there's a bit of a tangent, but Something I've been thinking about a lot lately. In 1971, a guy named Delano Merriweather. Do you know him?
1: I heard his name, yeah.
0: Ah, then you're a rare one, because most people don't. He has the world record to this day in the 100-yard dash, because they switched to meters after he set that world record. And he was running in shoes that are much more like ours, thin, flexible, lightweight, on a crappy track surface, frankly. And he ran a nine-flat 100 yards, which equates to about a 9.800 meters, which would make him like the fourth fastest guy in the world today – and he wasn't even taking any drugs. So it's, you know, people f- have no sense of history as well when we have this conversation. So in addition to the misunderstanding of physics and, and um, kinetics, they don't have a sense of history.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And for most people, history starts the day you were born. Right. So <laughs> there's there's I that thought about that. Yeah. <laughs> That's one of the uh, one of the things you hear, like uh, on the politics side of things. Oh, you know, history starts for many people the day they're born. So if it happened after, you know, before that, they're they're not even listening. Um, well, but, the same is well, true for, <laughs> for for anything. This kind of it seems. Too, yeah.
0: Well, it's because we're Americans in Europe. They have a whole different sense of that. Yeah. Um, and, and Asia as well. So before we jump into like uh, the specifics of this, um, I'm curious what got you here? Because now, first of all, you know, 13, 14 years ago, when the barefoot boom started booming, there was no, there was very little research and there was very little incentive to do any research because who's going to pay for it. And so, but now that's, it's a different story, both research about what we're doing and research about what quote normal shoes are doing. Um, But where, where did you start and how did you end up here?
1: Sure. Yeah. So I was, uh, 29 years old and I wanted to run after having been relatively sedentary. Um, I wanted to run a half marathon before my 30th birthday. i had had a kid a couple of years before that. This is 20. So 2015, I had my first son and I was like, I want to be one of those active dads. I don't want to be like, Oh, go play out in the backyard. I can't move my back hurts or whatever. Um, so I started running back in 2015, had been doing that on and off, uh, for a few years. And then 2019 rolled around. I was like, you know what? I'm going to run a half marathon. And, uh, in that half marathon, which I ran in a time of one fifty eight twenty two, So I'm proud of that under two hours, um, ended up having a stress fracture in my foot. And it was one of those, you know, you cross train for a while, maybe on a stationary bike until the foot heals. And then for the next couple of years, I was really just plagued with all kinds of running injuries. It was right, uh, right knee pain and left knee pain and back pain. Um, I had an MRI on one of my knees and was told that I had, you know, patella, And we need to take it easy and buy some supportive shoes. Um, And shortly kind of after getting over the knee pain, it was my mom actually was like, oh, I just got these shoes, these zero shoes. You should really look into (laughs) them. And at the time, I was a professor at the university teaching in the OT department, teaching evidence based practice. And I was like, everything she was saying was one of those, you know, like the the spider sense in the back of my mind was like, no, there's no way this is true. Like, there's no way this is curing plantar fasciitis. There's no way it's doing all that. Um, so I dug into the research a lot. And what I came to find was that, um, and I've heard you say this, I think, a, a few a few times on different podcasts, like when you dig into the research, it's not so much that the shoes themselves are fixing the problems, it's the benefits that you receive by having more proprioceptive input in the bottom of your feet, right? Because the proprioceptive input or really just the sensory input of of walking um, and having flexible footwear uh, informs your movement patterns. And over time, you know, doing one movement pattern one way for five miles either leads to some injuries or you can build real strength. And that's kind of what got me started on it. So I was like, you know what, I'm going to try some... Uh, some of these natural or barefoot running shoes. And I started doing that, I don't know, 2020-ish, 2021-ish, and just haven't looked back. I don't think I've run in a pair of cushion shoes in a long time. And what I tell people to come into the clinic, what I tell folks uh, on the podcast and stuff like that is, again, it's like the shoes themselves are not a cure-all. It's the benefits that you get from wearing those shoes. Um, So my mom was right. The shoes were helping her, but not in the way that she thought.
0: (laughs) So that's true. So I'm intrigued by this, you know, it's a rare human being who when presented with information that conflicts with what they believe goes, huh, instead of immediately thinks of a million ways to argue yeah. against that point
1: confirmation and, bias, right? Yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> and, and, and I mean, it makes sense. You know, it's an evolutionary thing. We're wired to stick to what we believe because it would take, if we had to rethink something every time we encountered it, we'd be dead. Something would have eaten us by now. Yeah, exactly. So, so w- do you remember, I want to kind of pick this apart for the fun of it. What, you know, what was the it, it, I'm like thing about slowing the film down frame by frame. So your mom says, Hey, you got to try these out. And she's talking about all these things where she was, you know, in the right direction, but not necessarily for the right reason. Um, what happened? Uh, like when you said your spotty sense was tingling, can you a say more about that? And B tell me what you started researching, what you found when you actually dove in, where'd you, where'd you look and what'd you discover?
1: Sure. Yeah. So, um, I think that the thing that she said that I was like, Oh no, she said, Oh, I've had plantar fasciitis for years. And now I wear these shoes and I don't have plantar fasciitis. And I was like, okay. Um, <laughs> so what are you like, are you doing anything? And she's like, well, I'm exercising and stuff, but the shoes took away my plantar fasciitis. And I was like, we're gonna we're gonna dig into this, and being the the research nerd that I am, and having access to the you know PubMed and some of those <laughs> peer reviewed uh, research uh, journals through the university, I just kind of did a search, and the research that was being published back then, and probably still being published right now, is like compares like quote unquote shod runners to barefoot or minimalist runners, and I didn't know anything about any of these terms when I was digging into it. Um, and what I was looking at was I was trying to look at injury rates. But I was really looking at like the um, impact forces of running efficiency um, and things of that nature. So it's funny because even on the surface, there's one study, I can't remember where it was published, probably the Journal of Orthopedic and Sports Medicine or something like that. And they compared they compared shod runners to barefoot runners and uh, over I think it was a six week Program or something six weeks running on a treadmill, and they were testing stability uh, of the ankle. And at the end of that research study, um, they the conclusion was: well, the people that that were started they started running conventional shoes. They put them in barefoot shoes, and then they tested them for six weeks. They had m- more instability in their ankles than before. And so, you know, we should be whatever cautious about encouraging people to do minimal sh- uh, minimal shoes or something like that. And being at the time doing research or or teaching evidence-based practice, I was like, okay, like if I was to appraise this article, like what (laughs) the the conclusion that you're coming to, like obviously is a no brainer. If you take somebody from like stabilizing, like anti-pronation shoes and you put them in basically no shoes or very flexible shoes, like, well, no duh, they're going to end up pronating more. Probably. They're going to have some more instability, but they never made the connection for me of because they have instability, they will have more injuries. They they couldn't make that connection. Um, So I began digging a little bit more and a little bit more and ended up coming up with, uh, it was a study published, I think it was in 2018, and it was in uh, foot and ankle orthopedics. And it basically discussed foot exercises to transition people into barefoot to improve function, uh, muscle size, uh, foot pressure distribution, all kinds of stuff like that with the ultimate goal of like reducing injuries. And what they showed was like these, it was four, we call them the core four exercises in the book, but the core four foot exercises, which are basically like seated doming, standing doming. You're trying to just work the intrinsic muscles of the foot um, and toe spreading they equated that to increased, uh, increased endurance and ability and like heel raises and heel lifts decreased, uh, instances of plantar fasciitis, actually increasing the the natural arch of the foot. And that kind of got me down that rabbit hole of, okay, so obviously there's, there's a connection here between the footwear that you, that you choose and what that means for the function of your feet. You well, know, very similarly. I'm my background as a as a clinician is like upper extremity hands, and we talk about all the time splinting people like in the wrist or the hand, and one of the big things we 're worried about is intrinsic muscle wasting, you know losing the ability to grasp or to do fine motor things because you 're splinting or immobilizing the muscles over long periods of time um and it's the same basic principle in the feet right so um that kind of got me down the rabbit hole, and then I was like okay so now there's there's obviously some some merit here to the idea of allowing the feet to move more and then a, a doing it in a targeted way to build, like intentionally build strength um, to decrease the risk of injury in the long term, because really it's it's the strength and the, the, the foundation, like you said, of your body's movement um, that kind of dictates whether or not you're going to get injured in the long run or not.
0: Well, I want to highlight something else that you said you did that most people don't do and can't do. And that is you You looked at the research and then took a bit of a deeper dive into it. And what I mean when I'm saying that is I think about research, like almost any of the research that's comparing shod runners to barefoot runners, where they say, hey, we took some runners and we had them run barefoot. Yeah. Um, it's like, well, two things. One, if you just put them in a brand new shoe, their running gait would change. In fact, I was in the lab with Dr. Bill Sands, and he. this is a thing he would do is you'd come into his lab with every shoe you owned, and he would show that- each shoe you wore changed your gait. So, you know, that's one thing. And and for the things about, quote, running efficiency, which is not about how well you run, it's measuring VO2 max or something, yeah. um, how much energy you're expending when you're running. There's two things that are interesting about that. One, again, if you're just switching to something radically new, it's a new movement pattern that's unfamiliar, that's going to be uh, make a change and it's going to be more difficult. And then the other thing, basically what I'm saying is that, Very rarely can you actually find out more about the cohorts, about the people that they're using in the studies. That's the one thing. Yeah. And the other is, whether they paid any attention to form. Because even exactly. if you switch someone barefoot, especially on a treadmill, they can have shitty running form. They can still be overstriding, heel striking, do all these things. And no one ever seems to look at that or measure that. This is like in the early days when doctors would say, oh, I love this barefoot running thing. I'm getting more patients than ever. It's like, well, first of all, you said that in the early seventies when running shoes came out. And secondly, you know, um, when someone came in and said they got injured running barefoot, Did you ask them if they were actually running in bare feet or not? Well, no. And did you um, look at any video of them running? And do you know how to analyze their running form? No. So, Well, it's not about the footwear. It's about the form. And if you don't know what you're looking at, then you're just making up a whole story. But uh, there's a guy here in town. I'm usually reluctant to mention his name, but I will. Um, I think he might have retired, Roger Crom. And Roger, he would say that he was using accomplished barefoot runners to compare in his studies. And I called him on it. I said, I know all the barefoot runners in this town. You didn't have any of them in your study. You had people who do some barefoot training as part of their long distance training, but they're not barefoot runners. They've never run like a mile on pavement, for example. Yeah. Um, so, that, you know, not knowing who is actually being studied and not looking at the critical thing, like you, we both mentioned, form, not footwear. You know, b- the, these things are massively misunderstood, and most human beings don't have the resources or the will to really dive in and see. You know, is the study done well or not?
1: Yeah. Well, and I think it's one of those things like I had an edge, right? Because I was teaching this in the university. I went to grad school for this, like part evidence-based practice is what clinicians at least should be on the surface doing. <laughs> so being able to to look at a, at a study and kind of pick it apart more critically, like to your point, most of the, the, the studies out there comparing barefoot runners to non barefoot runners, they basically take a cohort of conventional runners and then randomly assign them to, right you know, one way or the other. So if you take somebody who's run t- the last 20 years in regular cushion, pronating, uh, you know, limiting shoes, and then you put them in barefoot shoes, like, of course, there's <laughs> like, they haven't learned how to run in those shoes yet. So right. they, it just leaves a little bit to be desired. <laughs>
0: so um, so I want to um, slow the film down one more time. So you sure. got a pair of shoes and what was your experience when you put them on? And I mean, what'd you do like the moment you got them? And what what was your experience of that?
1: Sure. So the, what I did the first time I put some shoes on, and I won't mention them because they're a competitor of yours, and I know okay. you speak. We're all, we're, all, we're all friends. Yeah. <laughs> so I ran. I put them on, and I actually ran backwards for like twenty paces. So that I could kind of feel someone, I think it was a marathon, uh, training Academy podcast I'd listened to before then was was talking about form. And they said, the best way to get good running form is to run backwards because you're going to naturally land on your, your midfoot or your forefoot. You're going to be upright. Um, your, your elbows are going to be behind your body. You're just going to get in good running form doing that. Um, and then you, so you run backwards, you know, 15, 20 pace, and then you run forward a little bit, trying to maintain that form. And what I noticed very quickly um, was that I went backwards. It was it felt good. And then it went forward and started heel striking a lot and it kind of hurt my feet because I was on pavement. And after probably about a block, my first run in minimal shoes really lasted maybe a quarter of a mile. Um, And that is because I'd I'd read some of this research and was like, listen, there are people getting injured. I don't want to run like four miles um, and injure myself. So I ran about a quarter of a mile or so. And what I noticed was initially I was striking very, like most people, very, I was overstriding. I was striking on my heel. It was hurting me. And probably in the first, I don't know, 100, 150 yards or so, um, I noticed that I began altering my my gait pattern. I was changing um, and I was landing more on that midfoot, forefoot um, and reducing some of those impacts on my heel. Um, and that was kind of my first go at this. And so what I tried to do was then build up So I was doing cross training so I wouldn't lose just functional capacity um, in the off days. And then I was just trying to extend longer and longer. And what I was trying to do is make sure that my form was good um, while I did the transition. And as soon as my form started breaking down, um, it was a sign to me of weakness. Um, So I would just stop running then. I would go back. I'd do whatever kind of exercise I was doing at the time because I kind of looked at it as a long-term transition. It took me ultimately, you know, about eight weeks or so before I was like back up to running a 5k or something like that and feeling good about it. But I was a spaz about, about the form. So I was not going to let myself run in poor form, especially after feeling it on my heel that first time I was like, okay, there's, there's a way to do this. And obviously it's a, it's a repetitive movement. I don't want to injure myself over a long period of time doing, you know, heel striking for two miles and bare feet. Um, so that's that's kind of what I did. I've seen a number
0: of people when they hear about this whole idea, um, and they hear that you're supposed to land midfoot or forefoot, they'll continue to overstride and then just yeah. point their toes, plantar flex. Yeah. Um, when you were making that transition in that first hundred, 150 meters, um, were you noticing any other changes in your gait? And others I mean, were you still overstriding and plantar flexing, or could you tell that you were getting your feet underneath
1: you? initially I was overstriding and kind of just planar flexing, yeah. um, after a while. And part of this was kind of reading and listening and kind of really listening to them to my body too. Like, um, I was landing more under me. And then what also happened was cadence. It kind of picked up as well. So the, the faster your cadence is at least the research kind of supports this as well. The faster your cadence is the harder it is to overstride. Yeah. <laughs> um,
0: nice. There's a, there's a chart that I, that I didn't save. And even if I did save, I am organization is not my skill set, where it was showing the um, relationship between cadence and force. And basically for most people, as your cadence was picking up, the amount of force uh, is reduced until you start picking it up significantly. And then basically once you start sprinting and you're putting a lot of force in the ground, but it was a nice U shaped curve between cadence and force. And I wish I could find that, um, that piece of research again.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, it's, a, it's about kind of finding that balance. So, um, and that's what I did. I I just tried to build up, you know, going from having run half a marathon and just having the capacity to like run 10 miles. Um, Like it was maybe humbling a little bit. It, like I was trying to fight the urge to run more because I knew I could run more, but I, I went into it with the, like with the vision that it was going to be a long game and that it was, you know, it was going to take some time to build up to that in the new I was looking at. I was changing my running technique. I was changing my running form, and that takes time.
0: Well, here's a sort of personal question, not like you know, deeply probing or anything. But what you're <laughs> describing is my favorite thing, which is you basically became your own coach. You were using the feedback you were getting to make these adjustments um, in, in real time. Did you have any sense that that's what was actually happening for you? Was that just the way you're built anyway, and you didn't notice?
1: No, I mean, I I kind of realized that what I was again, because of the because of my background in, in the clinic, like I kind of realized like what I was going to be doing involved learning new motor patterns. Um, so I was I kind of nerded out a little bit and was like, okay, these are the movements that we want to do if I'm going to be landing on my forefoot on my midfoot. Yeah, you know, I need to get my feet up under my body. I need to get my back up. I need to worry about the posture. I can't be over reaching with my arms. And it was a, a matter of like, I was having to be very cognizant of it while I was running for those first, you know, several weeks or months, like making sure that, okay, my form is good. I'm feeling it. This is what it feels like when I get out of, out of sync, whether it be overstriding or get reaching too far with my body or hunching over whatever it happened to be. And it, it just took learning, you know, learning what right feels like.
0: <laughs> well, you know, I love that you pointed out that you paid attention to what wrong feels like, because that's something that if we're not really aware of that, it's harder to learn what the right is. Yeah. So sometimes when, when I'm teaching people, I'll say exaggerate this thing you're doing badly because it's just so ingrained. You don't know what you're doing right or wrong. So you need to do something on either end of that spectrum to kind of wake up your brain enough to go, Oh, okay. Now I'm, now I know where I'm starting at least. So that, that's a good one. I, I, I want to lead to. Um, a couple of things, but we mentioned something else that I really like. Actually, you know, there's two things. One is thinking about the counterfactuals, thinking about when people are presented with this idea of running barefoot or minimalist footwear. No one ever seems to talk about the various places in the world where this is what they do without a problem Uh, for years and years and years. They never use that as an example of, hey, this is possible. The excuse is always, yeah, but they grew up doing that. So, you know, as if it's impossible to learn some new movement pattern at any point in your life. Like you can't learn to play the guitar once you're past the age of seven is sort of the analogy for that one. That makes no sense. And the other one that I love, and I'm dying to hear what your thoughts on this one is, um, I hear this one a lot from people I go, yeah, but we didn't evolve to run, uh, let's say barefoot or whatever on hard surfaces like this. What's your response to that? And is that, I don't even know if there's actually been research, but I have thoughts about this one. I'm curious if you do.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I kind of I am not one of those where or go barefoot or wear minimalist shoes all the time, no matter what, because there are times like, shoot, when I'm standing up on a concrete surface for a very long time, it's nice to have a little cushion. Um, I think <laughs> the reality is like our, if you look at the way our feet, our body really is designed to move and all that, like it was, we evolved to run on uneven surfaces. Yeah. that That, that makes sense on principle, but the reality is like once you learn the appropriate motor motor patterns, whether you're doing it on uneven surfaces or flat surfaces, the impact force is still being reduced if you're running appropriately. So I don't know. I feel like, yeah, I'm not too too convinced, you know? (laughs)
0: Well, I mean, my version is um, you got to go to these places that we evolved on and in because there's a lot of hard pack mud, which may as well be concrete with stuff sticking out of it that you don't want to step on or in. Rocks and and gravel. I, I also love to say, look, as a former gymnast, um, we did not evolve to do double twisting, double backflips, yeah. yeah. but we can do them. We didn't evolve to, you know, fly fighter jets, but we can do it. So this, the, I don't even know what this fallacy is called. It's sort of like the reverse naturalistic fallacy, which is yeah. if it's natural, it's good. This one is, I don't know what it is, but um, it's a misunderstanding of, you know, of history and what we can do. There's gotta be a name for that one somewhere.
1: Yeah. And I mean, the reality is like neuroplasticity, like we're, yeah our brains and our as such, because our brains control our body and our motor patterns, like our brains change from the day we're born to the day we die. So there's no reason to think that you can't learn a new motor pattern or you can't generalize a skill from, say, uneven surfaces to flat, hard surfaces if given no. the, the right you know, time and training,
0: great feedback. I mean, I will I will add to that since you brought up neuroplasticity and your experience it took you about eight weeks. Um, for me, it was much faster. and for some people, it's longer because people do have different mm, propensities for neuroplastic change, for learning a new yeah. movement pattern, for adopting that, for feeling it. and of course, you know there people will be better or worse at different things so you might find that uh you're if you're running you're not going to be as elegant as some guy who's a 2 hour 5 minute marathoner who's just wired for that but that doesn't mean that you can't find a way to do this that's enjoyable and works for you i also like reminding people that there's lots of different ways you can run. There's different distances. So I'm a sprinter. I run a really, I run as fast as I can in a straight line for a really short distance. I don't take turns around the track because I don't have a GPS watch and I don't like to get lost. So, (laughs) um, but there are other people who, you know, the idea of what I'm doing just is completely absurd and they'll run hundred mile races and everything in between. So not only is there that thing of finding that, that taking your time to become your own coach, to listen and find this new optimal form, but then figure out what you want to do with it, it was a whole other piece of the puzzle.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think part of it too, with the, the taking the eight weeks was was more strength-based than anything. Like the reality was I had been running in, sh- in shoes that had limited the intrinsic muscle strength of, of my feet. So um, taking the time to really strengthen the right muscles in the kinetic chain. And it's been one of those things that, you know, even now, like I'm still working, I had an injury, maybe three, four months ago, six months ago, in my glute med, and it was probably because of the way I was running. So now it's, you know, one of the PTs in the clinic here has been working with me, and I've been strengthening that right muscle that that left side, of uh, that left glute and working on it to address really in the context of running, you know, so I, I think it's one of those things too. like, it's not only it's not only the the neuroplasticity piece, but it's really, the strength of the underlying muscles too, and you're going to find stuff like, okay, now that my feet is strong, the problem just moves up the kinetic chain, and now that you know my knee is strong, now is my hip, and now that my hip is strong, you know, you'll play whack a mole probably your whole well, life. I think that the reality is just approaching it from this motor control strength based approach as opposed to what trying we to stabilize. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, and I think it
0: can go the other way around too, and and what you just pointed out, the glute medius um which most people don't even know that they have is when I was with Bill Sands he was saying this is the number one thing that oh, we yeah. do with runners is they just don't have any strength in their glute medius and for anyone listening just look that up and look up stre- and we can talk about strengthening exercises for that as well i saw something on the trail the other day that blew my mind this woman ran by me and her left leg looked totally fine everything you know was in alignment looked great her right leg her knee was pointed inward, vastus valgus, and her right foot was still pointed outward. It was everted in a way that I've never seen. It was like, like corkscrewed. Yeah. And then I noticed she was a little overweight. And I noticed something that blew, like I said, blew my mind. She had no right glute. I mean, I don't know if she had it removed, but I mean, literally yeah. like her left glute was a full looking thing in a slightly overweight woman. And her right glute was like flat as a pancake.
1: Atrophied, yeah.
0: Yeah. And of course, that's the thing. If you are not using your glutes at all, all of those things that happen downstream and you're, you're turning your, your femur being internally rotated, rotating your knee, all of that, like it made total sense. And I was inches away from literally stopping her and saying, here's some exercises that if you do this, I guarantee uh, that's going to straighten out your leg and you're not going to be running like a dork. And, but I was, <laughs> I was not that rude, but if I see her again, i say
1: probably the way the message is delivered has something to, <laughs>
0: um, yeah, I don't know what the right way to deliver that message is. Um, Cause it's certainly not, Hey, when you ran by, I was staring at your ass. And um, <laughs> you know, that's definitely not the way to start that conversation. Um, I don't know what the right way is. So this is, this is, uh, this took us a while just to get to leading to where you started by saying you almost, at the beginning, said in the clinic. So talk about what you're doing now and with whom you're doing these things and what you're doing with these people.
1: Sure, yeah. So we uh, at the clinic have you uh, know, physical therapy. Obviously, we get people that are coming for all sorts of some ailments. Um, the On the running side of things, a lot of what we're doing is we don't, Push this whole idea of minimalist footwear or or anything like that. We talk about just natural running patterns, really. So we wrote a book called The Natural Runner. It's an eight-week plan uh, to, to transition from um, conventional heel striking, overstriding to a more natural re- running gait. Um, so a lot of that involves exercises. Um, both corrective and then endurance building and then obviously running within the context of this program to try to um, get you to the point where, you know, you could do this in thick cushion shoes if you want to. I would argue that you probably need a little bit more proprioceptive feedback, but if that's what you want to do, you want to keep your hokas or whatever um, with their you know 50 millimeter cushions, <laughs> go for it. Um, or if you want to go all the way and go, you know, barefoot. This program works for that too. Really, the idea was just to reduce people's injury by addressing the underlying strength component, the motor pattern and the form. Um, And that's kind of what we do with with the natural running programs. Do
0: you know about Isabel Sacco's research on foot strengthening and people running in regular shoes? No, I have not. Oh, so Isabel Sacco, S-A-C-C-O, she had people do an eight-week foot strengthening exercise program and uh, or split two people in quote normal shoes, split into two groups. One did this exercise program, the other didn't. And over the course of the year-long study, the ones who did just the initial eight-week exercise program had a 250% uh, lower uh, incidence of injury than those who didn't in regular shoes. Now I add to that, Sarah Ridge's study would show that if you just walk in minimalist footwear like ours, um, you can build foot strength as much as doing an exercise program. Now, no one's done the study yet showing you can just walk in minimalist shoes, run in regular shoes and have a reduced injury rate, but kind of do the math. If you're walking, walking in minimalist shoes, that builds foot strength as much as the same exercise program that Isabel used to show a reduction in injury rate. And if that makes sense to you with the transitive property of injury, um, then go for it. But, um, so yeah, you'll get a kick out of that study. So, I know people are going to want to hear a bit more about what's in your book without giving away the entirety okay. of the book. Um, so say more about what you're actually doing or give people some examples of things they can do. And then the, before I forget, because if I don't ask this now, I'll forget. Um, have you thought about doing a study demonstrating the value of this program? Maybe you can we have
1: through. thought about it. It's it's you know, it's one of those uh, being probably on the former academic institution side of things. Like I get, you know, like a randomized controlled trial and all that just costs a lot of money to do <laughs> That's true, so you know we you can do, and I've been saying this for years in healthcare like the the value in healthcare tangent here the value in healthcare is the data the outcomes data and what you what you can do with that what you can demonstrate from that so we're definitely all about tracking data and outcomes and trying to to equate that we're also dealing though with you know probably a biased sample size of people that are that are are coming in because they know that they have a problem here an injury and they're trying to fix it they they stay right (laughs) they stay in the program as opposed to people who might come once or twice and then leave Um, so you don't get those outcomes So yeah, down the line, research would be cool um, if we could get funding or something. Be There's a,
0: um, I have a, a friend who's, a I guess, how old is he now? He's got to be, geez, almost 80. Um, he's a doctor who does prolotherapy. He's actually the guy who taught prolotherapy to almost yeah. everyone in the country who knows it. And for people who don't know prolotherapy, you basically take a needle and you jab it into the tendon or ligament that's having some laxity problems or some some tendinosis or tendonitis. And it basically selectively injures your body so that yeah. your body recruits things you to heal
1: microtraumas. that. Yeah.
0: yeah, exactly. And, um, and I said to, to Tom once, I said, you know, talk to me about the research on prolo he goes here's the research i don't take insurance i charge a lot of money and people come back <laughs> yeah <laughs> wait sorry i don't take insurance i charge a lot of money it's really painful and people come back and refer their friends so you know there's a certain t- time where anecdotal information is actually valuable but anyway yeah. but backing up to what's in the program let's walk through that or run through that
1: Yeah. Run through that. Yeah. I like it. Um, so it basically, it's a seven day workout plan or seven day workout week. And we adapted it from a great book, um, by, oh man, it was published by runner's world. Um, it was called train smart run forever. And the idea, we basically took the idea of the seven, seven day workout week and adapted it for this specific thing. But his idea was, uh, the author's idea was basically to be a lifelong runner. You obviously need to not just run, you need to work on all those things that break down over time, right? The, the right muscles, the, um, maybe it's endurance and compass, functional capacity. So we kind of took that and adapted it for, okay, what does it mean for somebody transitioning from conventional running to, um, to natural running? What does that mean for their, their foot strength, their posture, all of that. So, um, it starts with, basically understanding those four foot exercises and then what they call weightless or, or barefoot weight bearing. Um, and this is based off of a study that was published in the foot and ankle orthopedics in 2018, but they basically outlined four exercises. Two of them are similar. So there's seated foot doming, which is, you know, trying to draw your feet up like that. Like you're arching your feet. You do so that. We, standing. So for, people,
0: for people who are just listening, can you describe that again?
1: Yeah. You're basically, uh, putting your, your heel and your toes flat on the ground, and then you're keeping them on the ground. You're trying to pull them together, almost like you're crunching your foot up, trying to arch your foot. Um, it's an isometric contraction. You're trying to hold it three to five seconds. Um, and you do that while you're standing. So you're weight bearing, and then you're doing it. And then you're doing it while you're seated. Um, and those are the first two exercises. The next one is plantar flexion and inversion. So plantar flexion is just pointing your toes. And then inversion is bringing the sole of your foot towards the midline of your body. So you're pointing your toes and bringing them in. And then the last one is just spreading your toes, spreading them apart and closing them. Um, And doing this in conjunction with uh, what they call barefoot weight bearing, which is just walking around in bare feet for at least two hours a day, five days a week, Um, increases increases the strength in your calves, your feet, obviously your foot muscles um, and can decrease injuries going forward. So uh, the title of that study is uh, Can Foot Exercises and Going Barefoot Improve Function, Muscle Size, Foot Pressure um, During Walking and Qualitative Reports of Function in People with Flat Feet. So what they actually did in this study was they measured the arch of people's feet over time during this program. Um, And it was an eight week program And the majority of people who came in with like flat foot deformity did these exercises. They didn't do any other, you know, they didn't run. They didn't do any other kind of exercise programs. They didn't wear orthotics. They just did these exercises and then they walked around in bare feet. Um, And the majority of them, I think two thirds or so, ended up with actually defining or a defined arch at the end of eight weeks. So it builds the intrinsic foot muscles of your feet, uh, the muscles of your feet, which is kind of the platform for all of the running going forward. If you think about what, what a foot does biomechanically, like you've got this arch and that arch can spring and kind of absorb some of the cushion. um, and then it's also stabilizing you as well. So that's kind of the first, the first level is every single day, you're going to do these, these, uh, foot exercises and you're going to walk around with bare feet, um, regardless of whether or not you're going to wear normal shoes when you're running or or whatever, you're going to work on the intrinsic muscles of your feet and uh improving you know the balance and then and then the strength, obviously going forward, that's it. um no, that's just the first part, so <laughs> <laughs> that's the beginning um, yeah, that's the beginning um and then. Each other day. So you've got three days where you're running, and then the other days you're doing some kind of cross training. And then one day a week is just like a recovery stretch day. Um, And basically, what you're doing is some kind of cross training. Now, we give you some examples in the book, um, like jump rope, cycling, rowing, and all those are really focused on kind of the endurance, functional capacity side of things. We always recommend jump rope uh, for the first eight weeks where you're transitioning because that's really where you're going to build some of that intrinsic foot strength while you're actually jumping. But then you're also getting uh, eccentric contraction of the of the calf, which running and transitioning into a forefoot uh, motion means you're landing on the, the, the front or the middle of your foot, and then your heel is lowering down. And if you have not strengthened your calf or your gastroc, you're going to end up with tightness, with soreness, Possibly some injuries if you do it you know too long, too quickly. So the jump rope doing uh, doing that as a cross training gives you the added benefit of that You're not losing any endurance. You're building some of that functional capacity, but then you're also training those foot muscles and the gastroc for what will eventually be a long run landing on your midfoot. Um, So those are the the cross training days. And then there's just various strength exercises and you're focused really on the posterior kinetic chain, which is, we've mentioned it, your glutes, your hams, your calf muscles, um, a little bit of core work. And basically the idea there is that you're building the strength foundation for all of your running. So most people, um, most runners and really people in the U S in general, um, because we sit at a desk all day um, and because of the way we overstride a lot of times, you get strong anterior kinetic chains. So your, your cat, your quads are very strong. Your hip flexors are tight. Um, most people can't extend their hip or like kick their leg back very, very far because it gets tight up in the, in the kind of the iliopsoas area, the quad area. So we work on stretching those as well. And then strengthening um, your butt, your glute, your hamstrings, because those are going to end up pushing you or driving you forward in a forefoot pattern instead of kind of like pulling forward with your quad. Right.
0: I heard something the other day. Um, uh, it was a uh, an interview with um, the author, David Sedaris, who moved to France And, um, some people mentioned to him that he walked like an American and they, and he said, what does that mean? He says, you throw your legs in front of you. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what we do. We don't use our glutes and our hamstrings to extend, to push ourselves forward. We kind of throw our leg forward and kind of hop over it. Um, So we're using, we're using the exact opposite muscles for what's optimal.
1: Yeah. And from like a, just a standard impact force of what that's doing, like when you overstride like that and you hit with your heel, um, not only are, you know, you're working those quads a little bit more, but the energy transfer is basically like you've taken this straight rod and you've just jammed it into the ground. So the force is going right up the kinetic chain, up your ankles, knees into your hips and into your lower back. So it's not uncommon for runners to have, you know, back pain or, or low back pain or hip pain. And a lot of times it's just they're, they're striding and they're smacking the the ground super, super hard. I was talking to a PT friend of mine the other day and he was, he owns a PT clinic as well. And one of his, his guys is really into running. And, uh, he was running on the treadmill, um, this PT friend of mine, And his other, his colleague came in and was like, dude, you are so loud on this (laughs) machine. It sounds like you're trying to bring down the building. And a lot of it was from that overstriding. So, you know, a a few things that he did was just, he shortened, he shortened his, uh, his, his stride length his cadence. And the sound went from like thunk, 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 thunk thunk, to more like tap, 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 tap. And that's what you want when you're running. And we address that in the book as well. Like think about think about how fast your feet are moving because the, the less time your feet are in the ground, one, it means there's less force coming up the back, but also means you're, you're running quicker. There's less impact. It's it's good for everybody. So that's kind of like the first phase is we're, we're working on this cross training. We're working on strengthening the right muscles every single day. You're doing these foot exercises and you're walking around for at least two hours a day, barefoot. Some of our folks will try to break it up. Like I did a morning in the, uh, an hour in the morning, an hour in the evening, sure. The goal is just to increase over time. I always tell people like, unless you're in public there's really no reason for you to wear shoes.
0: <laughs> I, I would argue that even if you are in public, um, it's totally cool. Depends on where you live, uh, obviously. And like, if you're in a beach community, then it's really yeah. easy to do that. So there's times where I'm in Costco in bare feet and they will be like, you know, parent and kids and the kids will go, mommy, that, that man's not wearing shoes. And if the parents are nice, they'll say, why don't you ask him about that? And they go, "Why? how come you don't wear shoes? I go, have you ever been to the beach? And they say, yeah. I go, do you wear shoes? They say, no. I go, why don't you just pretend we're at the beach? I go, okay. <laughs> They're totally hip to it. Um, it's, it's also, like it's also
1: parental problems everywhere now.
0: <laughs> well, th- that's my goal. Um, it's also really fun. Like, if you haven't been in a grocery store in bare feet where the floors are nice and smooth and cold on a really hot oh, summer yeah. day, and then you go to the produce section right when the mister goes off and you just kind of oh. hang out there, oh man, that's the best.
1: Nice. <laughs> well,
0: so, um, so, so, um, as we kind of bring things in for a landing, if people want to find out more a about you and what you're doing and, um, and the program in the book, um, let them know how they can do that.
1: Sure. Yeah. They can find us at pro-activehealth.com. We've got a tab there for running resources, but the book is called the natural runner, um, an eight week training program to transition to barefoot or natural, uh, Natural running without injuring yourself. I
0: think there we go. And I, and I love that you've adopted natural running because my favorite thing I, I wanted to bring this up earlier is you watch kids learning to run, and this is yeah. everything we've talked about is how they naturally do it. They don't need any instruction. This is, and, and there's one other thing they do when they're running this way, which is, um, so, uh, weird, smile. um, thing smiling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They have a good time. Yeah um so um, so, so, Rafi, this has been an absolute pleasure, and um, I- I'm thrilled to hear your story, and I'm hoping that more people. Kind of inspired by it and understand just those little idiosyncratic differences as well. I mean, I I like talking to people who have taken a, a dive into this, not just from their own experience but also from the research side as well. But to highlight that it's not, you know, people always ask, you know, is there a program? And while you've created a program, yeah. I'm sure your experience has been that for some people take it can go faster, some people takes a little less, more time, less time, and 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 that thing that you described of basically becoming your own coach by listening and experimenting. That's the best thing from in my mind because then you're not um, you're not swayed by people's stories of um, that they think that they can make you better with some magic technology that doesn't yeah. really have any validity and, yeah. and you know that's another another one of my goals to make people immune to marketing bullshit.
1: Yeah. Well, there's a, we quote this article in the, uh, in the book, but there's the quote is something along the lines of like, we've invested so many millions of dollars in, um, in technology and running technology, but quote, like the perceived benefits of injury reduction with this running technology has not borne out in the, in the, in in the literature, right?
0: Uh, Not even in the literature, in the people who are doing the actual running. I mean, that's the thing in the early days with maximalist shoes, I was training with a handful of Olympians, and I said to them, In two years, you won't be able to run again. And they're like, Yeah, what are you? You know, I'm putting in more miles than ever with these things. I went, Yeah, yeah, I know. Um, you, you're going to, your knees will be blown out in two years. And two years later, they all switched to cycling. So, <laughs> um, you know, they just could they literally couldn't run, and it's it, and ironically they could now if they transitioned properly and got back into a natural form, but um that again, you tell people something that they don't believe and their natural reaction is to disbelieve you, especially you know coming from somebody like me where I'm not an academic, I'm not a researcher, I look the way I look, and I'm a sprinter, put it all together, yeah. um and they and, and I own a footwear brand. I mean the exactly, irony yeah. is. And my, my, I wrote this line down the other day I started a footwear company because I hate shoes so much and <laughs> um uh which can which I think I have to make a video where that's the opening line just to see what happens because people don't really get it but anyway um do me a favor give me the give me URLs one more time for everyone
1: sure it's pro dash activehealth.com and then the book is called uh the natural Runner an eight Week Transition program something or other <laughs> 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 It'll
0: be obvious when you get there. That's the point. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah perfect. Well, um, A, thank you again. And B, you know, I, I want to, um, we'll have to talk offline because um, I'd love to help promote what you're doing since obviously it's what I believe in. And you've codified things in a way that um, we can add to our library of things for people to to uh, jump into. And, and by the way, speaking as a former competitive rope jumper, um, I love that uh, you suggested that as well, because undeniably uh, that can help build strength better and faster than almost oh, anything yeah. other than running, frankly. So, so, <laughs> And for everybody else, um, thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us. A reminder again, just head over to www.jointhemovementmovement.com. You'll find all the previous episodes, of which there are a bunch, um, and you'll find ways you can find us on social media. And if you want to like, drop me an email with a suggestion, a comment, uh, someone you think should be on the show, whatever you want to toss in my direction, just you can send that to move, M-O-V-E, at jointhemovementmovement.com. And until next time, uh, go out, have fun and live life feet first.